This podcast contains content that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. I just remember the feeling of um, anger and, um, and pain. You know, in my country, people who had come from outside were going around killing innocent civilians. And then there wasn't even acknowledgement. And I was also scared because I remember discussing with my father then that this would have consequences about how people would view international presence in Afghanistan. And it would add to local resentment and subsequently to violence. Every day, when hundreds civilians are killed in conflict and countless more are harmed, yet their perspectives are often missing from the stories we tell about war. This is the Civilian Protection Podcast, a monthly podcast produced by Civic and PAX. Hey everyone, this is Mark Orlasco, military advisor from PAX, and relevant to today's episode, the former head of the Protection of Civilians Office at the UN mission in Afghanistan in 2011. And I'm Annie Scheel, senior advisor for the United States at Center for Civilians in Conflict, or CIVIC. Our organizations work in conflicts around the world to protect civilians caught in war. And in this episode, we're talking about Afghanistan. After consulting closely with our allies and partners, with our military leaders and intelligence personnel, with our diplomats and our development experts, with the Congress and the Vice President, as well as with Mr. Ghani and many others around the world, I've concluded that it's time to end America's longest war. It's time for American troops to come home. That's U.S. President Joe Biden standing in the White House Treaty Room on April 14th, 2021, announcing that the United States was withdrawing from Afghanistan and ending its official involvement in the war, a war that started two decades earlier with the U.S. invasion in response to the attacks of 9-11, America's longest war. And since that announcement in April, a lot has happened, with Afghanistan seeming to make heartbreaking headlines almost daily. Taliban forces entered the heart of the Afghan capital, Kabul, today, the culmination of a rapid advance and retaking of control almost exactly two decades after they were ousted from power. Thousands of people hoping to leave Afghanistan before Tuesday's deadline are still crowding outside Kabul's airport. The Pentagon confirming there has been an explosion outside Kabul airport, where thousands of people have gathered to try to evacuate the country. Initial reports suggest it was caused by a suicide bomber and that there are casualties. This just in from the Pentagon. We can confirm that a number of U.S. service members were killed in today's complex attack on the Kabul airport. Today in Afghanistan, the U.S. striking back, delivering on the promise of retaliation for a suicide bombing at Kabul airport. A CENTCOM spokesman said the target is believed to have been killed with no known civilian casualties. I'm here to announce the completion of our withdrawal from Afghanistan and the end of the military mission to evacuate American citizens, third country nationals, and vulnerable Afghans. The last C-17 lifted off from Hamad Karzai International Airport on August 30th this afternoon at 3.29 p.m. East Coast time. One of the U.S. military's final acts in Afghanistan, a drone strike on a suspected car bomb, turns out to have been a horrific blunder. As many as 10 civilians, including up to seven children, were tragically killed in that strike. Millions of people in Afghanistan are facing starvation in what's fast becoming the worst humanitarian crisis on Earth. 
There's a lot to talk about. From how international forces got involved in Afghanistan in the first place, and how that mission morphed, to the withdrawal and challenges with evacuation, to the Kabul airstrike and subsequent civilian casualties. But we're not going to do that today. What we want to explore today is something that has seemed to be missing throughout the news cycles of the last few months. Through all of the speeches and breaking headlines and talking heads and think tank events about what comes next. And that's reflection. And specifically, reflection on the legacy of the war for Afghan civilians. And that's important for a lot of reasons. Without that reflection and acknowledgement, we can't understand the true costs of the war. We can't learn from past mistakes. And maybe most importantly, we can't have real accountability for the harm that's been done. To better understand the civilian experience over those 20 years of war and what challenges Afghan civilians are facing today, I spoke with Shahadazad Akbar, chairperson for the Afghanistan Independent Human Rights Commission. Can you tell me where you're calling from right now? Istanbul, Turkey. Tell me about yourself. Can you briefly describe your background and how you got to your current role and what do you do today? Sure. I mean, I have, I have, uh, I was thinking about this question, actually. Um, I have studied in different places uh, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, US, and the UK. And my initial schooling was done both in Afghanistan and Pakistan because we were refugees in Pakistan when Taliban took over Afghanistan the first time. Um, and then I studied abroad um, and um, returned to Afghanistan to work. And I have worked in different sectors. Actually, my work hasn't been um, only human rights work. I have worked um, with media and I have worked on art and culture issues. I have worked with the government. I have worked in the private sector. Um, I co-founded a private consultancy firm. And I have worked with civil society, with uh, philanthropic organizations. Um, and I think the common thread um, to my work was trying to better Afghanistan, uh, my country. Right now, I am in exile. I am in transition um, because I, I don't feel like I can continue being the chair for the commission when the commission is not operational in Afghanistan. Um, but um, I'm transitioning. I just have some duty of care towards staff that I want to make sure is taken care of um, before I, I go and do something else. And what is it that the Afghanistan Independent Human Rights Commission does or, or seeks to achieve? The commission is a national human rights institution and it was established almost 19 years ago. It was one of the first uh, post-Bon Agreement institutions that were established in Afghanistan. The Bonn Agreement was a transitional government agreement signed under UN auspices in December 2001 after the US invasion. And the idea was that it would work to protect, promote, and monitor the human rights situation in Afghanistan. Um, it has constitutional basis, so it's mentioned in the Afghan constitution. It has its own law on its mandate. It's one of the organizations, state institutions with the most level of independence, I think I would say. Um, and um, it worked to document human rights violations as well as to work to improve laws um, to meet international standards, international human rights standards and promoted um, human rights. And our promotion work was about providing trainings, but also uh, providing protection to the extent possible, working with victims of domestic abuse and other victims of human rights violations. 
as a national human rights institution functioning in a context of conflict, of course, our um, ability to operate and our access continued to shrink as the conflict became more and more intense. The Commission um, has lost seven colleagues to violence, more than I think all the national human rights institutions in our region combined. Um, so it has a very particular history with the violence and conflict as well. U.S. and NATO forces were formally involved in Afghanistan for almost 20 years, America's longest war. And of course, international forces have been involved in Afghanistan long before the start of this particular war. But I want to start in the fall of 2001 mm. with the attacks of 9-11 and the start of a global war on terrorism, starting, of course, mm. in Afghanistan. How did that, I mean, how did you experience that and, and how did that framing shape the war and the experience of civilians? I mean, the initial post-2001 period was a period of hope for many in Afghanistan. I was, I was young then, I was just a teenager, but I was hopeful because we could go back to school. We were didn't have to be refugees anymore. We could return to our country because the main reason we left was because of my father's political activism and really even more than that, our education, um, the girls' education and the family. Um, but I, I mean, quickly, we, 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 noticed that we noticed that there are choices being made about Afghanistan, future of Afghanistan, with a very heavy-handed involvement from the U.S., um, supported by the rest of the international community or endorsed by the rest of the international community involved in Afghanistan. So there were decisions being made about the form of the government. Afghans were involved in the consultations, but it was clear where the U.S. stands. And of course, that makes a difference um, when there is the powers of the two sides are incomparable. We were completely dependent on the international community for bare survival of the state. So, And also, um, decisions were made about how to deal with the past. In fact, the Commission was um, included in the Bonn Agreement as a way to deal with the past. And I was very young then, but later, as the Commission um, continued its work, there was political opposition from the government and the international community to it actually carrying out its transitional justice mandate, particularly when it came to truthling and, um, and issues around um, accountability. So the foundational um, let's say, the foundational stones on justice and accountability um, were, were not set properly. Um, the, the, the U.S. understanding of stability came before um, any regard for the lives of civilians lost in, in the years of war um, in Afghanistan. So people who had been involved and people who had allegations of war crimes attached them, became U.S.'s closest allies in state-building in Afghanistan. And this sent a very direct message to the Afghan people. There is impunity. If you're our ally, you can get away with things. And this continued. So U.S. continued supporting people and working very closely with people who had horrific, horrific allegations of torture um, and forced disappearances, civilian harm, um, for instance, Razak and Kandahar, and others, in Norzgan, and other parts of the country. And that because these people were good allies, good allies in the war and terror. And so the framing of war and terror, security first, defeating terrorism first, and that very limited definition of security meant that everyone who kills, quote-unquote, the bad guys, 
has impunity and um, you know can can enjoy can enjoy status, power, position, forgiveness on behalf of the Afghan people by the U.S. Um, so our right to forgive was taken over, you know, by, by the international community. And I think that's sent a message to Afghans, to Afghans about the value attached to their lives. And then we saw also, of course, hurrying, horrifying patterns of um, night raids and you know, airstrikes where civilian lives were lost and there was no acknowledgement. At times there were attempts at to cover up um, protests. People were disregarded. Civilians' claims were disregarded as, you know, Taliban claims and terrorist claims. And unfortunately, we entrenched an already existing culture of impunity was further institutionalized under a broader banner of working for good governance and human rights. And so, of course, even the human rights movement in Afghanistan, I think, lost some credibility due to this. Because despite what the human rights movement tried to say and tried to hold the international community and everyone accountable, um, people saw that these human rights organizations are being funded by Western countries. They're being supported because we don't have others to do that. And, and then the international community uh, when it comes to the lives of civilians, when it comes to support to criminals, people, you know, people who, who have serious allegations of abuse, um, they're doing the both both things. Right? They're talking with about human rights one minute and next minute they're having dinner with an alleged war criminal who has been involved in, you know, massive, massive allegations of massive, massive war crimes exist about these people. Um, so by extension, we lost credibility in a way, I think. By extension, by we, I mean the human rights movement in Afghanistan even lost that credibility. You know, of course, talking about civilian harm, as you've often pointed out, as President Biden and other world leaders have reflected on these 20 years of war and on the withdrawal, the legacy of civilian harm by foreign forces in Afghanistan has really rarely been part of that conversation, mm -hmm. if ever. So can you talk a little bit more about what that legacy of civilian harm looks like? You know, you mentioned yeah. a few examples, but what was the civilian experience yeah. in Afghanistan? Uh, of course, you know, changed over yeah. 20 years, but what, what, what did that yeah, look like? Yeah, I mean, we had, you know, the, the, the conflict was brutal. Right? It was a brutal conflict. And, and especially, I mean, as the conflict became more intense, um, U.S. and international forces um, resorted more and more um, to tactics that were um, that would protect their own soldiers. On the other hand, of course, the Taliban were also using tactics that were basically designed <laughs> designed to cause civilian harm, like suicide attacks in the middle of the city, suicide attacks in, in hospitals, suicide attacks in restaurants. Um, but as the international forces retreated from uh, more retreated more and more from um, you know kind of confrontation, there was more res resorting to um, airstrikes. And airstrikes, um, there was faulty information. And one of the causes was um, of civilian harm was that, was that there was often a faulty information. And, um, and, and civilians would get harmed. And then there wasn't a proper apology. There wasn't a proper process in place of true uh, reparations. Um, you know, some money would be paid, um, some cash would be paid, 
sometimes by the US government, sometimes by the Afghan government, but often even claims of civilian casualties would not be um, admitted to, like, yes, we made this mistake, even admitting a mistake wasn't an off, uh, wasn't a regular occurrence. And so this created a, a sense of resentment, and this created a sense of anger, and this created distance, this created this sense of fear in the village of Afghanistan where anything that you, you would see in the sky could bring death to you, basically. And then there were the night raids, the night raids that were done sometimes jointly with the Afghan forces and the international forces. And these night raids also violated um, a whole set of cultural norms that also sometimes these were done based on, on um, faulty information. So in the middle of the night, you go to someone's house, you enter main, enter a house, a family's house. You know, there are women, there are children. Um, you try to arrest someone, you attack them, they get scared, people have guns, people try to defend themselves. People get killed, innocent people get killed. Um, people are also illegally held, or when held in detention, tortured. And the legacy now is that we don't have, you know, I, I believe, and you know that I have, I have written about this, I believe that all information that NATO uh, countries have about civilian harm should be made public for the interest of their, um, um, their, their people, but also the Afghan people. We have a right to know what's being recorded with them. All the complaints that they received, that they received complaints, they have to be made public. We have to know. So that kind of the basic act, the basic right of victims to truth. What happened? Why, would this, why did this happen? Um, and then, of course, there has to be accountability and justice and operations. The only country who is taking some steps towards some form of accountability, and that's because, you know, it, it was their own soldiers talking about this, not, not just half ones, is Australians. Um, but when I talk to people about the US, they tell me that we might have to wait a very long time to see something similar. Are there specific stories that are particularly emblematic to you or impacted you especially? Yes, I mean, there. I remember and I was in, in, in Smith, I was studying at the time in the U.S. and I was home um, for summer when a wedding was bombed um, in Nedgarhar. Um, and, and the bride was among those who were killed. And it created a huge uproar. And I, I remember thinking and discussing with my father, what, why is the president Karzai at the time condemned it, of course. And I just remember the feeling of um, anger and, um, and pain. In my country, people who had come from outside were going around killing innocent civilians. And then there wasn't even acknowledgement. And I was also scared because I remember discussing with my father then that this would have consequences about how people would view international presence in Afghanistan. And it would add to local resentment and subsequently to violence, to endless cycles of violence and revenge. And later in work, my work with the commission, of course, uh, by the time I start my work with the commission um, in 2019, um, Afghan forces were mainly the ones that were um, carrying operations and engaging in, um, engaging in, um, in, in war. And, but 
we had reports of incidents and hosts of nitrates and once in Nengarhar um, of these um, special forces, Afghan special forces, just walking into homes of people and shooting them. They were trained by the US military and they had copied, in addition to the technical training, they had copied that attitude, right, of just this, this assurance that there will be no accountability. And they are powerful, they can do what they please. Um, and it just really worried me, really, really, in addition to sadness and grief, it just really worried me about what it meant for continued conflict in Afghanistan. And unfortunately, we are seeing it with Taliban. They are doing night raids. They are going after people. Um, based on mere allegations and um, holding them illegally and torturing them or killing them on the spot. So the cycle, unfortunately, um, continues and Afghans don't see justice, Afghans don't see peace. And how did that lack of accountability, I mean, you know, in working with the commission, how did you see that play out for, for families and for the people who are harmed. In our work with the commission, we would end up talking to families who would come from very remote parts of the country to, re to register their cases. Or uh, my colleagues would end up documenting their stories through uh, phone interviews. And what really um, surprised me was to what extent people were um, aware that there should be justice. Like people knew that they deserve accountability and justice. Um, and they were willing to go to lengths to get that justice and accountability in a country with a completely broken justice system. I mean, we, we didn't have a functioning, a really functioning justice system, barely functioning. And, um, you know, you would talk to someone who had lived their whole lives, this old man who had lived their whole lives in a remote part of Afghanistan, and they would talk about ICC and ICC investigation. Um, so it was, the impact was there forever, right? The ICC is the International Criminal Court. In September, the court's prosecutor announced that he would resume his office's investigation of Afghanistan, but would prioritize crimes committed by the Taliban and ISIS-K, and deprioritize those committed by international forces, like the US CIA, an announcement that has received significant criticism. I talked to people who had been victims, victimized or had seen harm 2007, 2008, 2006, and they vividly remembered the stories and it was clear that they're still experiencing trauma and um, they, they have anger and resentment that there was never justice. They still don't know why what happened happened. Um, so the victims, uh, the community of victims in Afghanistan, because there are so many stakeholders in this war, it's a huge, unfortunately, huge community. Everyone has been impact impacted in, in some way. They all suffered lack of access to justice, to investigations, to accountability, to truth, whether they were victims of Taliban violence or government or international forces. And when, and when we were working on, um, when we were working on, um, on the peace process, what we really wanted to do was to bring these people um, to the talks, um, to be heard by the parties, for the parties to see uh, the urgency for ending the violence. You know, when something like that wedding strike happened, for example, or, you know, deaths mm -hmm. from those night raids, 
What did the response from international forces or from the Afghan government look like? You know, were there investigations? Did they acknowledge that it happened? You mentioned that sometimes there were payments, sometimes there weren't. And of course, you've talked about accountability. So what did that often look like? There was really not a very consistent pattern. I mean, I think you would see acknowledgement only after several organizations really pushed and said, look, this this really happens. You you, You can't deny this. You can't cover that. Uh, anymore. The last year of the government was really awful because um, people as high up as the first uh, vice president of the country denied civilian casualties, like went outright, right out there and said, no, these were not civilian or civilian casualties did not happen. And it was, it was, it was so enraging. And that's why we felt like it was so important for us to put our reports out. Our reports did not bring justice. Of course, we knew that we were trying, but they didn't. But what it brought was this recognition to the victim that we saw, we knew that a civilian was harmed. We knew that the person harmed from your family was a civilian. We don't believe what's being said about them being, you know, an armed person or a terrorist or whatever. Um, and and often that was the only thing that that victims got, and they got that because of the work of the Commission and UNAMA and human rights organizations, um, that, that at least someone was acknowledging their pain and, and giving the platform to them and hearing them and recording their stories and the details of those stories. Um, with the international forces, um, airstrikes, for instance, in January, we came up, it was in January 2020, there was a high number of airstrikes and some of them American airstrikes, and some of them led to civilian casualties, and we came out with our reports. But when later American forces reported on their own civilian casualties, the numbers were very different, much lower. So there wasn't full, there was never full acknowledgement, some acknowledgement, but never full acknowledgement. And when payments were made, they weren't always made because they came with the acknowledgement that we harmed civilians. They were done as a way to, you know, respond to the protests or to the anger somehow. But it was never sufficient. There were cases also when victims refused payment, victims' families refused payment in a very poor country because what they really wanted was acknowledgement and justice. Um, So, and, and, you know, it was when, when the withdrawal was happening and I was watching the U.S. narrative about the withdrawal in Afghanistan, and, you know, all the, all, all the blaming of Afghans and yes, Afghan political elite, the political leadership absolutely to blame all of us, all of us Afghans who, who are in positions where we could make things better and perhaps didn't try enough. All of us are to blame. But it was so enraging to me that there was such little reflection on what the international community did wrong. Yeah. You know, those with more power have more responsibility. It was a very important imbalanced power relationship, the one that we had with the international community, the one that the Afghan people had and the one that the Afghan state had. And yet, when anything went wrong, when there was corruption, it's the Afghans, when there's, you know, failure in war, it's the Afghans, when, there, when there's anything that goes wrong. And, and it was, that was the broader thing that bothered me, but specifically as, as a human rights activist. And as someone who was working with families of victims, it really bothered me that there was no recognition of the fact that so many Afghans lost their lives in this war and made so many sacrifices. 
security forces, but also civilians who lost their lives because of mistakes or, you know, any, any acknowledgement. There was no acknowledgement that after 20 years, we are looking back and now we are taking a moment to think of all the civilians that we have harmed and we apologize. Something as, as simple as that, it wouldn't have been sufficient, but it would have been acknowledgement of the value that our lives hold and an acknowledgement of the responsibility of the U.S. as 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 the country leading this intervention, this military intervention. And that wasn't, and, and I'm, I'm not sure it's going to be unless we keep pushing and pushing and pushing. So a little background here that will be helpful for the next part of this interview. NATO's combat mission in Afghanistan ended in 2014, but international forces remained as part of a new mission called Resolute Support, focused on training and advising Afghan security forces. Also at this time, U.S. President Barack Obama announced a large troop drawdown, and the U.S. shifted its focus to airstrikes in support of Afghan forces. The policy shifted again under President Trump, who announced he would maintain the United States' open-ended military commitment in Afghanistan based on conditions on the ground. U.S. Taliban peace talks progressed in early 2019, before Trump called them off that fall. The intensified fighting that followed the failed peace deal resulted in record levels of civilian casualties. In February 2020, Trump signed an agreement with the Taliban, setting the terms for a U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan by May 1, 2021. In accordance with that deal, U.S. and NATO forces withdrew between May and August of that year. The Taliban completed its takeover of Afghanistan with the fall of Kabul on August 15th. How did you experience the withdrawal and the takeover? I mean, the discussions about withdrawal from Afghanistan, reducing presence in Afghanistan, ETC, has been going on since 2014 for Afghans, right? We have, there, there, was, there was a substantial reduction in military forces in 2014, and there was a lot of anxiety at that time about, you know, what, what would that look like for Afghans? And of course, it had consequences, economic, ETC, security-wise. But um, so it wasn't entirely new in the sense, this discussion of withdrawal. And... I personally never opposed withdrawal. I, I thought, you know, withdrawal needs to happen. But it was more about the how and um, the framing of it and the linkage between withdrawal and peace process. Um, in some ways, and I know that many analysts and French experts that I have talked to disagree with this, but in some, in some ways, I really um, thought, you know, if he wants to withdraw... It doesn't, have, it doesn't have to have a peace agreement with Taliban before it does this. Unless it really wants to do, like, do it properly, do the peace process properly. Doing a rushed peace process, which wasn't a peace process, so that they could withdraw, made us all worse off rather than better off. Um, so I think that, I mean, many, many discussions that I had with the American policymakers or people who are working uh, representing the U.S. on the ground in Afghanistan, it was not about, please don't withdraw. It was more about, how does this timeline communicate to realities on the ground? What does it mean about continued support, technical support to security forces? What does it mean about you all taking responsibility for what happened in this period? And what does future engagement look like? Things like that. And the main, the, main, the main focus for us really more than the 
withdrawal was the peace process. So we spent a lot of time and energy talking to Afghans, engaging with them, asking them what they want from a peace process. So the majority of my conversations also with the Americans and the international community in general was about the peace process. How can we make this peace process better? It has a lot of room for improvement. And one of the key things that I raised also with the U.S. envoy to Afghanistan, Ambassador Khalil Zod, was can we get, for instance, Taliban to, um, to, come up, to come out and say publicly, prosecutors, journalists, women's rights defenders, musicians are civilians and they should not be targeted. And if, people, if our people target them, we will hold them accountable. Especially as there was an increase in targeted killings and I lost two of my own colleagues. I, I talked to the Americans and I said, what are you getting in exchange for this deal from Taliban for the Afghans? Where is the lives of Afghan civilians, especially Afghan civilians? What are the Afghan civilians getting? We are not getting a ceasefire. We are not even getting a recognition of civilians as civilians by the Taliban. What's the point of this for, for civilian protection? What's the point of this for civilian protection? I mean, how is this making the lives of Afghan civilians better? It's not in any way. So how can, you, how can you in good faith call this a peace process? And how can you expect Afghans to believe that this is a peace process? It's not bringing them any peace, any form of peace or security. And that was my biggest grievance to the extent the lives of Afghans was again completely missing from the discussion. It was about Taliban's anti-terror commitments or whatever it's called, you know, anti-terrorism commitments, which God knows who can verify and how. But there was no discussion about, okay, we are talking to you. So that was really, really, really frustrating. And it was just continuous messaging that your lives don't matter, your future don't matter, civilian protection of Afghanistan doesn't matter. Um, and even when there was discussions about reduction of violence, and I said, is there a specific discussion? What would this reduction of violence mean in terms of civilian protection? Yes. They're not gonna attack, say, uh, city centers, fine, that can reduce civilian casualties to some extent. But have you, have you really got them to commit that they will not attack hospitals, schools, you know, major civilian um, centers, district governor's office where civilians come and go to, and the district governor himself or herself is a civilian. Um, and it was in July when Taliban killed the deputy spokesperson um, to Afghan president and took responsibility for it, unlike the prior target killings in which probably they were involved. And uh, yeah, because, because no one ever bothered to get them to agree to not attack civilians. Yeah. What role do you think this, these 20 years of civilian harm, what role did that play in the outcome of the withdrawal and the Taliban takeover? I mean, it was a slow build-up, right? People, we, let me give you an example about, about institutional building in Afghanistan. There was a lot of money spent on access to justice in Afghanistan, including some of the money that was given to the commission came from these access to justice funds. And so training of police, prosecutors, improving the legal framework, and this whole process, they did some things very flawed, but they did some things focused on, um, Elimination of violence against women. So there was um, prosecutors who were trained on this. There was a specific law. And additionally, there was um, a specific department in the Attorney General's office 
as well as in courts and some training to the police on elimination of violence against women. Because this was a key agenda for the international community, but also for Afghan human rights community. But we never saw this level of investment and engagement, which should have been similar levels of engagement and investment, on um, victims of war. So we, we really don't, don't have a legal framework for protection of victims, for, for preventing, preventing war crimes. Um, and crimes against humanity. We really didn't have um, people who are trained in the Attorney General's office to prosecute or investigate allegations of war crimes and people in the court who would know what war crimes are and how to hold people accountable to them. And this was done, I think, intentionally, right? Because, again, this culture of impunity benefited the war on terror, was seen as benefiting the war, the efforts of the war on terror efforts. Because if someone is attacking your enemy, you want them, apparently you want them to be the most brutal version of themselves and get away with that. And this this led to disbelief, this led to distance, this led to grievances and resentment um, among the Afghan population about the intentions of the international community and the intentions of, and the ability of the Afghan government to protect its sovereignty the ability of the Afghan government to protect its population, because every time something like this happened, even when the government said, you know, we, we really condemn this and we want the international forces, you know, to be more responsible, of course, people saw nothing coming out of it, concrete. So it's really, I think it's really, it was really damaging. And I think it's damaging also to veterans in, in the US military. I mean, people are sacrificing their lives, right? They're leaving their families. Some of them never go back, and um, they go back with physical and mental disabilities. Many people come there and they don't commit any crimes, they don't cause any civilian harm. But because this issue is not deal dealt with, the way people look at an American soldier in Afghanistan, particularly in many rural parts of Afghanistan. So it's not helping anyone. It's really, it's really it's hurting everyone. Yeah. And it hurts everyone. How does the U.S. or how, how can the U.S. and NATO countries reckon with that legacy today? What does accountability look like now? I think it's really, I mean, it's, it's not late at all. I think, I think this should be, you know, they should be engaging now. They should have been engaging before very seriously on this on a very high level, but they could start now, it could begin now. You know, what we see in Australia is an example. Um, it's, it's an important example to consider for, for the British forces, for the American forces. In 2020, the Australian Defence Force released the results of a four-year inquiry into misconduct by its forces, finding that elite troops unlawfully killed Afghan prisoners and civilians. The report recommended that 19 soldiers be investigated for possible charges including murder. Um, it, it's, it's important, just acknowledgement of the fact that, you know, there are even just acknowledgement saying there are credible allegations and we will truly try to investigate. I think that will not only, of course, mean a lot for, for Afghans and for victims in Afghanistan, but generally for the Afghan public, but it will also mean a lot for the credibility of the U.S. when it talks about what, what human rights focused 
foreign policy or something. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, that, that's human rights. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's where you can start. Today, as billions of dollars in foreign aid vanished practically overnight, and as U.S. sanctions seek to isolate the Taliban from the global financial system, Afghanistan faces a cash shortage and economic collapse. As a result, the United Nations estimates that 22.8 million people, more than half the population, are expected to face life-threatening levels of food insecurity. So the humanitarian situation is dire in Afghanistan right now. And I think all steps should be taken to elevate the suffering and uh, provide humanitarian aid, meet the pillages, ensure that there is ongoing discussion with Taliban about how the humanitarian aid is um, you know, made accessible, particularly to women and to um, communities in remote Afghanistan and without discrimination. There's also, there should also be continuous exploration of ways to get the cash into the country and into the economy because development aid is not sufficient. You can't go on not paying salaries of teachers and doctors and, you know, that, that's, that's not sustainable. People can't live on a bag of rice and, you know, um, a bottle of oil for the years to come. That's, that's no way to live. Um, and so there should be... Every attempt should be made, and there should be political will and courage and empathy on both sides, Taliban and the Americans mainly, but the international community, to find solutions, explore solutions. I'm not saying there is one concrete solution. Um, there is no, no magic bullet, and uh, I, I am Taliban. I, I strongly believe Taliban should not be recognized unless they recognize half of their population. So, of course, that creates a strong political hurdle in terms of delivering assistance to Afghanistan um, through the Afghan de facto government. But solutions have been offered. Um, people have thought about this. There, there's not a lack of solutions. Now the effort should be in trying to implement some of those solutions to elevate suffering, to prevent further suffering, to prevent far, further conflict and violence. Um, and then it, it has been, it, it, you know, we really, when the peace process was going on, despite all its flaws, I really had a tiny little bit of hope and we put a lot of work into victims inclusion and I was really hoping that once we don't have a full-scale conflict we'll have an opportunity to talk about what we did to each other as Afghans as well and how much harm we caused and really listen to victims of war their stories and, and face our truth because I don't think as a country we can I don't think we can I don't think we can go on like this honestly uh, if, if we don't face our past um, I don't think we can, we can find peace. Unfortunately, Taliban's attitudes in the past three months uh, has, has taken all that hope away. I, I don't see, I, I really don't see, I don't really see prospects improving for civilian protection. I see the tactics Taliban are using against people that they don't like. And um, it's just a repeat of, and in some cases worse than what we had seen in the past. So. That's something that's breaking my heart every day. So before we end, is there anything else that you want to say? And what should listeners take away from this episode? There was a war going on for 20 years in my country. And many different countries were involved. You know, probably some of your listeners come from these different countries. I think it's their right to know what happened in this war. It's their right to know. They have a right to truth as well from victims. And I think they also have 
they also need to know that their governments bear some responsibility for the situation in Afghanistan now. Afghans missed a lot of opportunities. They made a lot of mistakes. Yes, we have to take responsibility, our political leadership. But that the mess that we see in Afghanistan right now is not just our doing. There's a historical context to this, even before 9-11. And there's a there is a historical con context to the violence that we see in different parts of the world, particularly in my part of the world, in which people from very different parts of the world, in government from very different parts of the world, mainly the West, is involved. So I think, you know, as, as responsible citizens trying to educate ourselves about that history and trying to do something or getting our governments to do something to elevate the suffering and to reduce harm. And then thinking about the future, what can we learn from this intervention? Really, what have our governments, our politicians learned from this intervention to ensure that similar harm will not happen? To what extent we are holding them to account? to tell us, to narrate to us, to share with us what happened. Um, I think that, you know, Afghans lost everything. We lost everything and, and we have to start from scratch. But this doesn't have to happen to others. And how can we prevent that? That was it for this episode. Next time on the Civilian Protection Podcast, we'll discuss reverberating effects, the long-term problems that result from incidents of civilian harm. We'll explore the June 2015 bombing of an industrial area in Hawija, Iraq, the deaths and injuries that resulted, and how people in Hawija have coped with other long-term effects of that strike, such as loss of livelihood, psychological trauma, and displacement. The Civilian Protection Podcast is brought to you by Center for Civilians in Conflict and PACS, two NGOs working to improve the lives of civilians caught in conflict. Today's episode was written by Mark Orlasco and Annie Scheel, with assistance from Monica Zura, Ari Talani, Aaron Bell, and Selma Von Oshvard. It was produced by the Podcast Guru. Monica Zura made the designs and made sure we're online. And of course, we'd like to thank Shahadazad Akbar for joining us as a guest. You can find us on Spotify or anywhere that you get your podcasts. We want to hear from you. Share your thoughts on this episode or topics you'd like us to cover by emailing civilianprotectionpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at protectionpod to stay up to date on our episodes and guest speakers and get behind the scenes content. You can follow Shahrazad Akbar and the work of the Afghanistan Independent Human Rights Commission on Twitter and on their website aihrc.org.af Find full interviews and upcoming episodes on our websites civiliansinconflict.org slash podcast and protectionofcivilians.org Thanks for listening. <laughs>